we are kind of embarking on this interesting journey for the next few few weeks here. Um, and we're talking, and we started talking about it last week, but we're talking about culture uh, and, and what it means for us to participate in meaningful ways in making something and not just not just kind of passively attending or becoming a part of something. Do you know we're only a generation away from complete illiteracy in our world? One generational gap, and nobody knows how to read. Nobody knows how to talk any language. One generation. Isn't that crazy how fragile our whole society is? You know? And, and, and when you think about why, why doesn't that happen? Why hasn't that happened? And it's because we have developed a culture where things get passed down, right? All it takes is one generation that doesn't exist, you know, 20 years, and nobody knows anything. My almost teenagers don't know <laughs> how to speak or write. <laughs> they have to start from scratch, and it's another couple thousand years, you know, before we get anywhere. So, so it's really interesting for us to understand that the world that we inhabit, the world that we inhabit is, is um, something that... that the culture, the, the way that things have slowly been developed, they get passed down on and on and on. And, uh, and, and once we understand that, we understand both how powerful it is what we receive is, but also how much power that we have to give something to other people that they will eventually receive. Um, you know, you don't wake up as a baby. I guess you're not really waking up, but you don't get birthed as a baby and see a fork and be like, that's for food, right? You see other people use it. You might, you might turn into a, what, a dingle hopper? Is that what it is? Yeah, I grew up on that movie. Oh, my gosh. By the way, I watched The Little Mermaid with my kids the other, the other day. It was not nearly as good as I remember it being when I, was, when I watched it, like, twice a week growing up. Um, but, uh, yeah, they've really come a long way in some of these, these movie-making um, adventures. But, but, uh, but we, we learn how to use a fork because our parents put it in our hands, and, uh, and, and we see them doing it. Or we see people around us doing it, and then we say, okay, this is, this is meant for that. This is, this is meant for, for this. Uh, and there's both beauty and danger in something like that, isn't there? There's incredible beauty and danger with the fact that the world is, is made right in front of us. And meaning is created for us many times and, and given to us. Because um, culture isn't just passed on, right? It's, it's created. Each of you were born into a complex family culture. Really, really complex family culture. And, and there were certain ways of being that were totally normalized. And that, I promise you, was a mix between healthy and unhealthy in every single one of our families. What was normal? There was a mix of healthy and unhealthy. And, but, but you learned that this is just the way the world works, and you began to act accordingly with all of that. But at some point, some of you, I would say maybe many of you, looked around, and in some ways, you said something needs to change. Something small, but, or something big, right? And you started doing things differently than what you had seen. You started doing different habits, different routines, different ways of talking to people, different ways of thinking, different ways of relating to other people. Because you saw that something that was being passed down needed to change. And what you were doing was creating a new culture. You were, you were changing the way that people received something. Your children, your friends, your family, even your parents. You were starting to change some things and show something, something new. And, and those things may very well become the new normal for the next generation that comes up. They will be uh, 
the culture that is passed on to them will become what they see as normal. Uh, Christian cultural critic, a uh, guy named Ken Myers, says really simply, culture is what you make of the world, or what we make of the world. I'll put it here. And this is really important. Oh, if anybody ever happens to find the purple Expos that have the little liquid ink in it, I really need another purple one. They're darker than everything else, and I love them, but this makes me really sad when this is not as dark as I want it to be. I, I really like, if you're joining us for the first time, I, I kind of have a special thing with whiteboards. Um, yeah, it might, <coughs> might be a little understatement. <laughs> so culture is what we make of the world, right? Uh, we receive, we create. These human efforts to take what has been given and make something new with it, all right? Even at the beginning of our biblical story, like we talked about just briefly in Genesis last week, people received a world that God created for them. They received it, but they were given the task and the responsibility to create new things. So it's a both and. They receive something, but say, make it work the earth, tend the earth, shape it in ways that line up with the, the heart of God, certainly, but in new ways. There's freedom there. Uh, so as a church, as a people of Jesus, this is why when we read things in like Romans 12 too, don't, be or don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The passages like that, they, they point us to say, don't simply receive the culture that is passed to you without sending it through this lens of, of Jesus and without really, really deeply considering, really, really deeply considering what's most in line with God's world. And then once you do, then begin to act in new ways in light of what God has done in you and in, what, in light of what the values of Jesus are in the world. Um, so we have the capacity to create culture. This is all just laying the groundwork for the next few weeks, okay, because we're actually going to look at a story in just a moment. Um, so we have the capacity to create culture, and I think sometimes we miss it when we think culture is just this powerful thing out there. You know, this, this or, or worse, culture is this thing that we're at war with. Oh, man, the damage that's been done by us thinking that we're at war with, with the culture, whatever the culture is, this, this boogeyman out there. And so, so uh, we realized in many ways, in my spiritual heritage, uh, the Anabaptists, my theological heritage uh, 200 years ago, and I have a lot of love for my stream that formed me, but one of the big, big things was separation from the world. So, so the people that, I, that formed my spiritual background are the people who branches were the Amish, and Mennonites and, and the brethren, and we're connected with a family of churches called the Brethren in Christ. But, but what, what one of those ways of being was, was saying we don't want to be soiled by the world, so we want to remove ourselves so that we can stay holy. That's not really the kind of holiness that the New Testament points to, though. Certainly not to engage in, in um, ways that, that cause us to share the values of, of the world around us, but certainly not to be so far removed from it that we can't be involved. And so, so then what ended up happening was the phrase, and I'm sure that you've probably heard this, engaging the culture became really, really big in like the 90s and the early 2000s. We want to engage the culture. Um, and, and that has some value, okay? That has some value. This idea that, uh, that we shouldn't be removed from the world, but rather we should be involved in the world, that, that's good. We should be unafraid to be involved in the lives of those of those people who are outside of our faith, outside of, 
of our maybe ways of thinking, um, to look and listen and notice where God might be present in all those places. That's really good. But sometimes I still wonder if that is too passive of a posture. Even engaging the world sounds like, or engaging the culture, sounds like the, it's, it's this thing out there. And it's still one step removed from us understanding that we actually have the power and the capacity to create culture, to make a different kind of world. That's part of the gift that Jesus, that Jesus has designed the church for, to be what we call often an alternative society of the love of God that shows the value systems of the kingdom where all are welcomed, where <clears throat> the lines between rich and poor and, um, and insiders and outsiders and ethnic backgrounds and racial diversity, where, where those are not the defining things in our relationship, but rather the defining things in our relationship are what we see the character of Jesus being. So, that's really, really beautiful. And so that's what the church is intended to be, to stand out in surprising ways by creating a culture that looks like the Jesus community, right? A, a culture that, that stands kind of in opposition to these ideas of comfort, selfishness, greed, fear, pride, okay? And, and we take a different path. And that's what God's people have done for all time and creating a new, light of, a new way of life. And so our spiritual ancestors... Uh, they, they decided that they wouldn't kind of toe the line of the normal way of living, but that they would live radically faithful lives. Sometimes they got it right. Sometimes we look at it and we say, I think we got it wrong a little bit. Um, but that, those stories, they get passed down, and the best ones, they end up creating the culture that the church decides that they want to live into. So it gets passed down. Culture is what we make of the world. That's why it matters for us. There's, there's our little introduction um, that's the first half of today. And then next week, we'll just start right into the stories. Um, but that's why we need to understand that because Jesus has made us new, because Jesus has made us new, we get to create something together, and we have the ability to create something together that's absolutely breathtaking. A community that actually embodies love. And, and yes, we're going to mess it up, and we're going to fail, and we're going to have to kind of work our way through it over and over again. But it can give life to all those people who encounter us when they're worn out from a world that is like really full of hate and selfishness, a world that's really lacking in mercy, lacking in justice, lacking in peace, and lacking imagination big time. So in these weeks, we're going to open our imaginations to Jesus, and we're going to think about the gift that we've been given to continue in this lineage of, uh, of culture creators that have gone before us. So with our eyes on Jesus, our hearts postured toward God's kingdom, we're going to understand that every single moment that we live is an opportunity to create culture in our church, in your own life and rhythm, in your family, and in your neighborhoods and the society around you. Okay, so let's talk about walking through fire. I like fire a whole lot, more than I should. Um, as a kid, I was a borderline pyromaniac, uh, and I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done, but thankfully most of them were low-scale. I did know someone who blew up their, their uh, was there someone in this church? I probably shouldn't say that. Somebody blew up their, their garage when they were a kid. Um, and uh, I don't think they talk about it very much, so if that's you, I'm so, so sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, so anyways, I didn't get to that extreme, but I did, a lot of, I did a lot of goofing around with fire in ways that I probably shouldn't have, and that's continued, and we have a fire pit in the back, so at least now it's contained a little bit more. Um, and we love that. We've, at our old house, we, we always had a fire bowl that we, we love to use, and now we've got a fire pit that we cook over a lot. And a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, with my, my children. My wife was gone. I'm not sure what she was doing that night, um, but the fact that she was not there is directly connected to what happened. 
next. Uh, and, and so what we were doing is, I don't know if we'd eat, I think we were just having a fire. I don't think we'd eaten over the fire that, that day. But um, I love roasting starbursts over the fire. So if you've never tried this before, it's brilliant. Because starbursts, now the problem is that they get really soft and gooey. But if you roast them just right, get them to that molten level, and then let them cool, the outside kind of gets like hard and crunchy, and the inside is soft and gooey, and it's just an amazing treat. So we were roasting Starburst, and I was teaching my, my children how to do this because it's a skill that is an important life skill. And so anyways, in the midst of all of this, um, I, I went a little too far, and I let my Starburst begin to drip. And in a moment of lacking a lot of mental clarity, I pulled it out of the fire and put my hand underneath it. And I don't know if you've ever made candy you ever made candy on the stove and you know when candy gets molten hot and it, yeah, it's really, really, really hot and if it drips onto your hand, it sticks and fuses with your skin. And so anyways, that happened um, and, and I had, I like, this whole part of my hand was bubbling for the last, it took about four weeks before, uh, before it, it stopped hurting me and now I've peeled off everything so now my hand's back to normal. Um, but all that to say, getting burned is a horrible thing. That's that, all that story was for that point. Like, you didn't really need that whole story for me to say that. Um, but getting burned is a horrible thing. And we're going to talk about a story where that was the risk, okay, in the Old Testament. And it's this brilliant story. And if you've been around the scriptures for a while, you've heard of it. You're familiar with it. Uh, but it's found in the book of Daniel in chapter 3. And I think it is one of my favorite stories because of the type of culture that is created that looks so undeniably like Jesus stuff that you can't miss it, okay? And so... Here's what's happening. I'm not going to give you a huge backstory, but we're in the Babylonian kingdom, and, and the king is Nebuchadnezzar. You've probably heard of him. And uh, so, so they have kind of, the, the Jewish people have been scattered, and, and there aren't that many of them around, but uh, every now and then they're popping up into stories, and we get these glimpses of how God uses seemingly insignificant people in the midst and in front of people who have significant power. So, all this to say, King Nebuchadnezzar, big man in charge, he's the king. Uh, at this point, the kings were seen as uh, literal servants or, or children of the gods. There were their representatives on earth. You can see how the early church flipped things and helped people understand the truth of Jesus, but it's really cool. So this guy, he builds this giant statue, this big giant idol, and he commands... We, at first, I thought it was, it was probably an image of him. The more you research, it, it, it looks unlikely. It was probably the image of the local god um, that King Nebuchadnezzar was seen as the kind of direct descendant or embodiment of on the earth. Okay, so it did give him power. Like this god, he's, I'm, I'm on his side, I'm his representative. So he builds this thing and says, hey, across the kingdom, everybody, when, when we play a bunch of instruments, everybody has to bow down and worship this thing, Okay. And, and any time you demand worship of somebody, you are trying to use your power in, in order to control. Okay, we see it all over the place. So, here's what happens. We find out that there's three Jewish young men, okay, and they are faithful Christ or faithful God followers, sorry. <laughs> um, and what ends up happening is some people who aren't a big fan of these, these Jewish men, uh, they, they notice that when this has been happening around the kingdom, these guys are not laying down in worship, okay? And so, so, uh, so, and they go and tell the king. 
All right, so as soon as they heard the sound, this is the whole, the, whole, uh, the whole region. This is verse 7 of Daniel 3. As soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, all kinds of music, people of every language fell down and they worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had put up. Uh, at this time, some astrologers came forward and they denounced the Jews. They said to the king, I'm, I'm moving through it fast here. May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree, yada, 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 that whoever doesn't fall down will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Okay. Um, furious with rage, we're told that Nebuchadnezzar is. So this guy gets really upset that other people are not towing the line and bringing the worship that he feels is due him because it's a way to control other people. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summons these guys. He brings them forward and he says, I need you to either explain what's going on or to bow immediately. Okay, this is, this is what's, what's happening. And so he comes to them and they, or he forces these guys to be brought and he says, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Then he gives them a chance. He says, now when you hear the sound of these instruments, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. He says, I'm going to be kind and gracious. As long as you listen now, no problem. No harm done. I won't kill you. <clears throat> but if you don't, which is just, it's, it's again, if, if show me that I can control you and, and we're good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? It's so, this, you feel the drama? Drama is incredible in a story like this. So here's what happens, okay? And here's what they say. So in Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Can we just sit for a moment with the first statement, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. Can you imagine, can you imagine being brought up before someone who says, if you do not listen to what I'm demanding you to do, you're going to be executed. And their first statement their first statement is, we don't feel the need to defend ourselves. Think about that in our culture just for a moment. Sit with that statement. How common is a statement like that in our culture? We don't need to try to win this argument. We're simply going to be faithful and trust God in this way. But we, we don't need to try to prove ourselves to you. Oh my goodness, how much of our world is constantly trying to prove ourselves? How much of our existence is let me prove to you either why I'm right or why this is the right way to go or X, Y, Z. There's a time for meaningful dialogue about why we hold the convictions that we hold. But think about a posture that doesn't need to defend itself all the time. This is radical, friends. This is really, really radical. A simple statement like that. I don't need to defend myself. There's no, there's no hint. You can say that with a bunch of arrogance. But I don't know if you're picking it up. I'd, I pick up absolutely no arrogance in a statement like this. In fact, they keep calling him your majesty. You can actually see the respect in the midst of this. This guy is furious. 
I I've read this over and over. I've looked at it from a bunch of different angles. I can't imagine them yelling at any of this. I can't imagine them coming at this with the same rage that he is bringing in. It's, it's a different feeling altogether. It's peace. It's trust that's emerging here. They want, here, here's what's fascinating. They want to bear God's character equally as well as following God's command. You catch that? Do you know that it's possible to follow God's command while not bearing God's character? It, it happens all the time. It's any time that we hold our, our, our views with, with arrogance. Any time that we dismiss another person, that's what we're moving into. Any time that our actions, regardless of how righteous we think they are, are not made with love, then we remove ourselves from the character of God while defending ourselves by being righteous. Do you understand these two things? It's just like it's possible to speak truth while not be loving and be loving while not speaking truth. Like, like this, is, this is the world that we have to, to live with. And here's the thing. Character matters to Jesus a lot. That's why I think this story is so brilliant. Because what we're seeing is we're seeing people bearing a character that looks an awful lot like Jesus while still holding a rock-solid conviction in what it means to live faithfully. And my goodness, is that a, a, a balance that captures me. How can love, or how can humility and conviction dwell together so closely, right? Because what ends up happening in our world is the more humility that we have, um, the, the more right, that, we, that people say, well, you know, if, if you're just not positive about things or if you hold things with an open hand, well, that means that you're just wishy-washy. You don't have real convictions, right? Um, you know, then, then you, if you give space for people to disagree with you, to have different, different um, viewpoints, then, then you don't really believe it, right? Because you admit that you might be wrong. So it's seen as not having a lot of conviction. Unfortunately, that's wrong, by the way, but it happens. And then on the other side, right, um, the, the stronger our convictions are, the more we convince ourselves that we don't need to have humility because we're right. What, humility is only for people that know that they might be wrong, and I'm not. <laughs> That's sarcasm. <laughs> please, please hear that. <laughs> we're not in a texting conversation here. You need to hear my, my tone. Right? But sometimes when, when, we, when we feel really strongly about something, we think that, that humility becomes a second-rate value. This is really damaging. We think that bearing, you know, following the commands of Jesus means that we don't have to follow the character of him. These two things are not separated in the kingdom of God. So there is a, there is a meekness, a gentleness that actually emerges throughout this whole story, and it's absolutely fascinating. There's a groundedness about these three men. There's a, a willingness to, to faithfully walk forward no matter the cost, but also without the need to destroy the one who's in the wrong. You can kind of hear it echoed in the words of 1 Peter chapter 13. Um, but even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. Chapter 3, I think I just said 13, 1 Peter 3. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. Do you think Peter was reflecting on the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as he knew the scriptures and began to write, as he had met Jesus 
I think he saw Jesus exemplify this clearly over and over again, undoubtedly. But here's what happens. The story goes on. Um, so after they say this, I would say, hey, king, we were, we were you know, sorry, your majesty, but, uh, but we're not going to change. And by the way, the second part of this is the next, my next favorite part. Here comes the humility. The, the humility isn't just in saying that they're not ripping him apart. There's, they don't even know what the end result's going to be. They said, he will rescue us. We believe that God's going to save us in this moment. But even if God doesn't, just want you to know, we don't have all this figured out. We don't have the miracles of God figured out. We don't always know how God works. But what we do know is that even if we're about to burn, even if we die, we're still at peace with our faithfulness. God's still good. <gasps> I almost wish... I don't wish. I, I would never say that. That sounds horrible. Um, but if, what kind of an impact would this story have if they hadn't been rescued in the way that we're about to find out that they were? Because what ends up happening is we say, look at how God rescued them in the fire, and, and we miss the point that they were willing to walk faithfully even if that wasn't the end result. And that, we, we know this. We know that always the, the moments of suffering that we deeply wish to avoid, the times that we have to walk through hard things, we know that God does not always rescue us from that. So this statement is as or more important in our lives than the rescue even that we're about to see, in my opinion. Because we have to learn how to trust God come what may. And understand that God's goodness far, far uh, goes beyond kind of the physical rescues that we desire in life. Okay. All right. We are going. We're going right now. Sorry. Okay. Um, all right. So the story goes on and here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar is furious with them and his face became distorted with rage. So they keep their cool and he continues to lose his. All right. Uh, he, he commanded that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than normal, okay? And then, um, so, so this, is, this is really, really intense. So after that, um, all these things happen. The, he commands the soldiers to tie them up. He, uh, they throw them in. So um, they throw them in with their hands bound into the furnace. The, king commanded, uh, the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took, them, uh, who took them into the furnace. So hot that even the soldiers who got near were killed. Okay? Then, here's what happens. Then the king leaps up. And here's what he says. Um, oh, no, no, yeah, let's just keep going. Then he looks in, and he leaps up in amazement, and he asks his advisors, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around the fire unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. I'm not much for adding things into the scripture, but that's Jesus. Uh, so Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Okay. This is fascinating. These guys have this unwavering commitment to follow God, to be faithful, held with humility and respect. And something happens when they're thrown into this fiery moment, okay? And, and so, so here's the, the things that I find absolutely fascinating about being thrown into the fire here. The first one is the bondage thing. They are bound, and the writer of the scriptures wants us to know big time that they're bound. Do you know how? There. So 
we go over and over and over, we are told that these guys are tied up. It's a big theme in this. So one of the first things that happened is they are bound, bound, bound until they take that moment of walking through the fire. And as soon as they walk through the fire, the bondage breaks, okay? So as soon as they walk into the fire in this moment, the things that held them captive are burnt off, all right? They're burnt away. They're walking freely. How, how incredible is that as an image as we think about following Jesus faithfully and walking through challenging times? That bondages get broken when we take those steps forward. The things that are holding us back earlier when we walk with humility and faithfulness begin to fall away and we begin to have a, new, a newfound experience of freedom. Okay? And then what happens? Oh, this is great. Look, I see four men walking around in the fire unbound and unharmed and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Okay, so whether that was an angelic presence, whether that was uh, the, the image or the presence of Jesus in a tangible way, I don't know. But I do know that with us, when we walk in faithfulness toward Jesus, we find that Jesus actually becomes tangible in his presence with us, right? So we find that in the midst of the fire, Jesus walks with us when we take new steps. It's beautiful. It's encouraging to know that when we walk into areas where we're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be so lonely, this is going to be so hard, loving in this way, that immediately Jesus joins us in a unique and powerful way. And throughout the, the New Testament, uh, Jesus tells his disciples that that's the promise that's, that's going to remain. Um, and at the end, this is really cool. We haven't looked at this verse yet. So they, they take a look at them and they find out that they're unharmed. Okay? But here's one of the statements that they say. They saw that they, the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair on their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. I love the last line of this little miniature story. There was no smell of fire on them. No smell of fire. Just think about that. They noticed that these guys don't even smell burnt. The smell of fire, it, 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 it doesn't just speak of protection. It speaks of of the fact that they didn't give off the vibe of the battle that they had just faced. The smell of fire could look like anger, righteous anger. How dare you test God like that? How dare you try to throw us into the fire? It could look like retribution. It could look like righteous indignation. The smell of fire on us often happens on the flip side of difficult journeys that we've walked through. We become cynical. We become angry. We become highly, highly critical. Some of you have walked through really difficult church experiences, and believe me, I get it. I get it. We've worked really hard to create a space at LifePath for people to openly acknowledge where the church has, has let people down, the deep shortcomings, the abuses, the power, the manipulation. It's happened. I know it's happened. We've talked about it, friends. But that that can turn you into somebody that's so cynical that you're not able to embrace the goodness. So I, I encourage you, continue to give that to Jesus. There is beauty there. You are allowed by all means to feel those feelings, but Jesus desires something better, and you're allowed and encouraged to actually be a part of creating that better peace. We can spend our lives being bitter, or we can let Jesus change us towards something more beautiful. It's not easy. It's not an order, but it's an opportunity. So, okay, Finally, at the end, by the way, you, you see this real need for ongoing discipleship. Because these men, they, they were well-grounded. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar pulls him back out, he's like, oh my goodness, your God is the true God. I have an idea. You know what he says? 
He's like, I have an idea. Everybody should have to worship your God, and we'll chop everyone up who doesn't. I can imagine a back, a back room conversation with the king of these guys being like, yes, you, you, you went a little overboard. With, like, we, I'm glad that you see the truth of, of the, the true living God, um, but we're going to have to back that sucker off just a little bit um, because we're not going to murder everybody who's, who's not a God follower. Um, and so, again, we see that confirmed with the character of Jesus. Uh, but, but, again, the, you see a groundedness. We find out that Nebuchadnezzar didn't quite get it, and he actually goes through a massive transformation, but it takes years, and it takes a lot of suffering. And you can read the rest of Daniel 3 and 4 for yourself. So what we find is that we find that there is incredible hope when we learn how to carry our faith with both boldness and gentleness that's founded on a love for Jesus. Um, these three guys were culture creators. We have the opportunity to continue in that tradition. When we trust Jesus in conviction and humility, and we'll end, we'll end with this, this stuff right here, um, we find that there's courage to take new steps of faithfulness. When we're deeply grounded in Jesus, we all of a sudden, we have courage to lovingly continue to walk through hard, faithful moments in our lives, even though sometimes that means we're going to feel like it might be alienating. It might be really, really hard, but we're going to have courage. If we're deeply grounded in Jesus, we're going to learn that we can actually represent Jesus without disrespecting people, right? Like, there's a difference between being persecuted and being a jerk, right? And sometimes we mix those up. Because sometimes faithfulness means that we're kind of rejected because we don't share the values of our world in certain ways. And sometimes we're just self-righteous and arrogant about it. And we're just, we're not, we're not respecting people and we're not showing the character of Jesus very well. But we can learn how to do that better. Um, when we trust Jesus in conviction and humility, we get to experience the presence of Jesus, right? We find that we're not alone in those moments in a radical, radical supernatural way. And we experience freedom in Christ in all sorts of new ways. We find that we can be at peace in areas that otherwise would have terrified us. It's really beautiful. Looks differently for all of us. We're not going to parse it all out. Um, so we are going to then um, just take a moment and, uh, and acknowledge that the reason that these men were brought before Nebuchadnezzar was because they had developed habits of prayer that grounded them in a new way. Others had noticed that they were praying to God that they were not just simply going out and doing their thing, they were deeply rooted in their connection to God. That's the only way that we can become transformed people. That's the only way that we can create these kinds of cultures, is if we are deeply rooted as people of prayer, where stillness starts to help us become more self-aware, where we can say, Jesus, this is an area that needs to be transformed in my heart still. That's a huge priority of our church, to say we need to slow down enough to be able to hear the voice of God and be changed, to be able to sit with Jesus in depth. So, yeah, let's be inspired to live in such a way because Jesus will be the one that actually changes our spirits if we allow him to. Let's pray. Jesus, we, uh, we acknowledge that this line, this, this, this balance of kind of conviction and boldness and humility and respect is really hard. It's really hard um, and, and painful in some ways. But yet we see that you join us. So I pray that whatever it might be that, uh, that we're thinking about throughout this message, that there might be something that stirs in us that gives us faith and hope and courage to know that you are with us on this journey and that we can both loving, we can, we can live with absolute love for others, for you, and with real conviction 
you know, uh, to, to be faithful. So we, we pray for your strength and your wisdom and your direction and all these things. Amen.